thought today would be helpful to take a look at this idea of the highest possible power and look in a place that would be unsuspecting. That is within the ancient Jewish writings of Samuel. The idea of the highest possible power is the self-constrained power goes back millennia. In fact, I have this I have this theory that if we're to get closer to truth, we must go back that somehow the origin of truth and the ancientness of writings have some sort of correlation. It's almost as if the further you go back closer to the Big Bang, the closer to truth you get. And so I want to take a look at this idea of constrained power, this self-constrained power, and, and look at the battle between a former king who is at the end of his reign and an up-and-coming king who is struggling with some things, but he is the forerunner to something even greater through the lens of the prophets. And now I'm not a, I'm not a Jew myself, so I find it odd that I'm this infatuated with the Jewish writings that it's something where they're beautiful, they're difficult to understand, but they're also very, very deep. And I think it was Origen who told us, I believe in the second century, that we must read everything, especially the ancient Jewish writings, through three different narratives. Number one, the literal interpretation. Number two, the moral interpretation. And number three, the figurative or the, the allegorical interpretation. And I think there's something to be said for that, that, that everything can be read in that, those three ways. And if the higher the literature, the more you could read depth into that. It's almost a, a three-dimensional perspective of what literature has to say. And so we find in this, in this writing of the life of Samuel, we find a couple of different instances where there are the old outgoing king, Saul, and the incoming king, David, who is on the run. Saul, the older, is trying to kill David the Younger, even though it's his actual son-in-law. And so I think you find a, find a few different things here. I think there's there's two parallel chapters within the writings of Samuel. Uh, it's in the first book of Samuel that is uh, chapters 24 and 26. They're, they're parallels, and they both take place in essentially the same, among the same group of people, and they both tell a very, very similar story. Both, both instances, David is on the run from Saul because Saul's been trying to kill him. Over and over again, because Saul intuits and knows that he is on the decline. He is on his way out the door, that he will be killed, and David will be the ascendant to the throne. Now, a couple of different ways to look at these stories. Let me let me touch base on the on the first story. the The first story goes something like this: the Ziphites. David goes and lives among the hills of the Ziphites uh, to escape Saul because Saul is trying to kill him. And Saul gets wind of this. He he puts together 3,000 mighty men. He goes and search for David. And they're on this, this war path. And Saul has to relieve himself. And he goes into a cave to relieve himself. But unbeknownst to him, David and his military men, approximately 600 hard-fighting, very ennoble type of people that are deep in debt, probably a lot of, a lot of criminals among them, they are also hiding in this very same cave, and they see Saul, but Saul does not see them. And this group of marauders encourages David, you've got to kill him. Like, that's your enemy. You've got to kill him. And David says something really unique that, you know, I could kill him, but far be it for me to put my hand against the Lord's anointed. That David has this idea that, that Saul is somehow anointed by, by God, and he is untouchable. He is, he is someone that cannot be messed with, because if you mess with Saul, you mess with the very reality that that binds and, and upholds the universe. Now, Saul also has this 
thing where he takes off this robe before he relieves himself. And David says, what I'll do is I'll go and I'll, I'll cut off a piece of his robe. Part of the, 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 probably the purple royal robe of Saul, he cuts it and takes a piece for himself. It's, it's this idea of taking the fractionality of the kingship for yourself. That's, that's intertwined within this idea of clipping off part of the robe and taking it for yourself. And David has remorse as Saul is, is departing the cave. And so he runs out and prostrates himself before Saul and says, hey, please forgive me, please forgive me, but I took off some of your robe and I should not have done that. I should not have put my hand against the Lord's anointed. This Lord's anointed theme is recurring in this part of Samuel's books. This idea that somehow someone is anointed for life and they never lose that anointing is is something that, that is really atypical to our Western minds. It's, it's maybe something that is useful in the Eastern context, but to the West, it's something where we really just don't apprehend it. The conversation between Saul and David proceeds, and basically David says, you know, please stop seeking me out. I don't have any harm for you. If I had been any harm for me, I would have killed you. Here's the proof I would have killed you. I could have, I got your robe, but I could have just easily just stabbed you in the back, but I decided not to do that. And Saul says, no, forgive me. I should have been looking, looking for you. Um, and they go their own ways. They go their own ways. And in with this conversation, David does make one note that he says that if I've done something against, and Ben are saying something against me, like they can't prove it because I've not done anything. I'm, I'm blameless. I'm guiltless. I'm, I'm innocent. But if God has said something against me, I shall make an offering and I will, I will pay the price. I'll make the offering to be good with God and to be good with you, Saul. And so they, they, they go on their own way. Saul declares he's not going to be after him anymore. But of course, this is a lie. The very next chapter, this would be chapter 25. There's a story about David. This is an interludal story, story about David sending his men to go claim payment for some work they had done with some sheep. And the man does not pay him. The, guy, the man's name is Nabal, which is fool. Nabal means fool. And so David is infuriated by this lack of respect that he's shown to his men. And he sends the men out to kill Nabal, to kill every man in his village, and to take for themselves what they believe that they were owed, which is just a handful of animals so that they might eat. And on the way out, Nabal's wife, Abigail, stops David and says, David's men says, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. Here's here are tons of guests. We apologize. My, my husband's a fool. My husband's a fool. It's like, like a lot of the wives should be telling about that right now. Like, like my, my husband's a fool. Like, just, just leave him alone. Let him go his one way. And so David's men relented. Um, that night, she tells her husband what had happened, that, that she gave all these gifts to David's men. And he has just a conniption, probably a stroke, something like that. And he falls dead that very evening, by morning anyway. And so the next day, David gets wind of it, and he sends for Abigail, because she's a beautiful woman, and has her as his wife. It's it's a little bit harking back to maybe four generations prior, where David's great-grandfather, I think it was his great-grandfather, Boaz, takes Ruth as a... It's a little bit of a redeemer. It's called it's called this idea of a kinsman redeemer in the, the Jewish way of thought that you would take a member of your family who's lost the provision of a husband and protect her from the outside world. If she doesn't have any sons, you would give her a son. If she has debts, you would pay that, those debts off you or you would assume those debts. You would negotiate with the creditors on her behalf in order to protect this woman who is now at the mercy of the entire world. But David does this to a woman who's not his kin. It's he becomes sort of like a, a non-kinsman redeemer, which is very intriguing because it's something we've not seen yet through the Jewish scriptures. And this, this sets up a the beginning of an archetype, the beginning of an archetypical figure 
that David becomes in himself a a pre messianic figure. This is this is echoed. But remember, David got to this place because he was out for bloodshed, for complete annihilation of someone who disrespected him through disrespecting his men. And so this is the type of place that David is. He's out in the wilderness. He's wondering. He's making these really really bad decisions. Story number two comes the next chapter in chapter 26 of the first book of Samuel, where Saul is out on the on the pariah. He is told by the Ziphites yet again that David is hiding amongst them out in the wilderness. And so he goes with his 3,000 men out again, and he's encamped. He's encamped, and David gets wind of this. He, he sneaks up to the periphery of the camp, and he, he sends spies out. And the spies come back and say, David, yeah, Saul's right there. They're sleeping on that other other peak over there. He looks over there, and it's, it's Saul's entire army of 3,000 people. And, and there's Saul laying in the very middle of the encampment with his the commander of his army, Abner, which is... I think it's his uncle, if memory serves correctly. And Abner is just is just there, and, and Saul says Saul's are sleeping. Paul and um, David says to two of his prized men, Abishai, Abishai, however you want to say, that, he's, who is brother of Joab, the, the who eventually becomes the commander of the armies of Israel, and another gentleman who's with there named Abiathar, who is a priest. Now, Abiathar is very interesting because back in chapter 22, Abiathar is living at Nob with his father, who's kind of the the central, the main priest there. And his father had aided David because David, when he was trying to flee Saul, comes to him and says, hey, I need a sword. Like, I don't have any sword. I don't have anything. So he feeds David bread, and he gives him the sword that David took from Goliath when he defeated Goliath as a youth. It was it was. Stored in the back, a gigantic sword, I would imagine, wrapped in cloth. And David says, there's no other sword better than this in the entire world. I'm going to take it. So now David is armed, and he's on the lamb in chapter 22. And as he, as David's leaving, he sees this guy by the name of Dog the Edomite, kind of a, a sinister-looking guy, kind of a hitman type of figure. And he thinks to himself, well, maybe it's a bad thing that Dog saw me leave. But he it, it's just a fleeting path fleeting thought and, he, and he's he's fearful so he just escapes well lo and behold dog does come back he comes back to saul and says hey guess who i saw over at nod with the priests i saw david so saul shows up to nod and has a conversation with the priests and they said yeah we did that we aided your son-in-law and your bodyguard the chief of your bodyguards is what david's official title was back then even though he was on the lamb and so saul is furious and he says everyone every last one of you will die and he orders the soldiers to kill all the priests. Now, remember, the priests are also anointed of God. This idea of, I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Priests, prophets, and kings. Those are the three people that are generally anointed back in the Jewish world. And his soldiers refuse to put out their hand against these priests. It's superstition. It's, and you, you wouldn't want to do that either. I mean, it, you would not want to kill potentially innocent priests who had nothing to do with this, especially if you thought there was a divine authority that was going to potentially strike you and curse you. It just it just wouldn't be smart. So they'd rather disobey the king, which is probably the smart thing to do. And so Saul has Dog the Edomite slaughter, and Dog comes in there and slaughters 80-some-odd people that day, and all the priests of Nod are gone. I think the entire village is actually gone. And there's only one person that escapes, and this person that escapes is the son of the senior priest, which is Abiathar. And this is this is who Abiathar is, the person who is with David and Abishai as they're outside this camp of Saul. And so David's out the spies. They see the camp. Abiathar and Abishai are there. David says, who wants to sneak with me into the camp? And everyone's like, hey, this guy just slaughtered my entire family. I'm going to. I'm going to sit back here and hang. 
Anabishi, who's just an insane maniac of a warrior. You'll later find out that he's killed hundreds of men by himself with a spear at one time. He's fought and killed other giants like Goliath. This is a bad, bad man. And he sneaks in there. This guy's still young. He's fresh. He's ready to go. And they sneak in there. And said the whole camp is under deep sleep. And David and Abishu sneak up to where Saul and Abner are sleeping. Next to Saul's head is Saul's spear. Saul's spear is also the, the device which Saul tried to use to kill David multiple times. He even tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, with the spear. The spear is somewhat of a symbol of vengeance and anger. And next to the spear is a jar of water, which obviously they're traveling. The king must have some water in the evening. And Abishu says to David, he says, just give me one shot. One stroke of this spear, I will pin him to the earth. He'll be done with him. You're going to be gone. And what Abishu doesn't realize is that Abner, his commander next to him, will also become the very foe and kill one of his other two brothers in a battle, a little skirmish. And then his other brother, Joab, the commander, will fight against Abner, the commander, when these two houses are divided. Eventually, on David's very deathbed, he will order his son Solomon to get rid of Joab for his murder of Abner. And so all these people are right there. They're all right there. Half of them are sleeping. The other two, David and Bishi, are upright. And David says, no, God forbid I put my hand against the Lord's anointed and remain guiltless. Remain guiltless. Like, David, you just went to try to wipe out an entire group of people the previous chapter because they disrespected you, but you want to remain guiltless. You let the entirety of the priests of Nob be slaughtered because you didn't want to take on that one-man Diog when you're on your way out because you were fearful. And you said that this guy's the Lord's anointed, but the Lord's anointed. Just slaughter the Lord's, Lord's anointed in Nob. He just killed all these priests. How is he still the Lord's anointed? I think David is blinded. Remember, he's he's in the he's in the wilderness. And the wilderness is always coordinated with this idea of finding and, and wondering and, and bewilderment. It's all pinned up in this term, the wilderness. And David himself takes the sword, the spear, out of the ground and the jar of water. And they sneak out and they go through a valley up to the other side of the other hill that's opposite it. And sometime when they get over there, maybe it's daylight by now, David yells out to the king, you know, look what Abner let me do. There were killers in your camp at your head. Here's here's proof. Here's the spear. Here's the jar of water. You should terminate Abner because he did not protect you. He should be the king's bodyguard. And Saul says, is that you, David, my son? Is that you, David, my son? And they had this really interesting conversation again about the guiltlessness of David, about David's ascendant to the throne, David's up and comings, but also David's purity. And this is the last conversation that David has with his father-in-law, Saul. Saul goes on to be killed a few days later. And so we find these themes in what we are and who we are that are reflecting of reality, that are somewhat of a fractal nature of what is to come and what has been. Something like the branches of a tree that mirror the other branches of the tree, which mirror the very trunk of the tree, are storylines which we're discussing now. Just like chapters 24 with the senses of the cave, where David lets Saul go. is also like the instance in chapter 26, where Saul is let go by David's unwillingness to kill the Lord's anointed. And this it puts us in a tough spot. And so I guess that would be the that would be the, the literal meaning of this story that David respects God and respects the king and is not willing to slaughter him, at least without a fair fight. Now, we also have this idea of the interpretation of the Jewish writings anyway in the in the figurative aspect. In the figurative aspect. Now, I don't think that the the use of figures, the use of people of instances of objects in these two very, very similar stories is, is by accident. 
Now, what do we have? Let's think about the, the thematic objects that we have in this story. We have this idea of soldiers. There's soldiers there that there's an idea of darkness, right? The cave is within the darkness, but also when in the second story where they're up on the mountaintop, they take the sword and the jar of water, they go up to the next mountaintop, meaning they went through a valley. The valley is a place where the sun can't get its darkest in the valley. There's this idea of of cave, of of darkness, of of death, the valley of the shadow of the death. The cave is also a place where people are buried. You have this jar that is there. You have this spear that is there. You have this this thing like a royal a royal royal robe that's torn. The robe of the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, is torn. Well, that's interesting. That's a that's a different thing. Now, pay attention to all these thematic uses of objects and people, because we're going to see this here in a second. We have two kings of Israel, both the current king and the future king of Israel, in dialogue. David makes a passing comment within his, within his comment to Saul that, you know, you may kill me, but do not let my blood fall to the ground. That you're the Lord's anointed, but he never infers to himself that he's the Lord's anointed. He is, David's already been anointed king by Samuel. He knows he's going to be king. So does Saul. Everyone knows that David will be king. So you have the Lord's anointed people there of the past and the anointed of the future there in conversation. This idea of David being guiltless, of being pure, of being innocent, this idea of a a cursedness. May I be cursed, what David said, if I've done anything wrong to you, Saul, knowing he'd not done anything wrong in his own mind. And finally, you have this idea of an offering, that if I've done something wrong, I will, and I've offended the Lord, I will offer up an offering to the Lord to make make payment for it. If I'm guilty, I want to I want to offer a payment for it. Something that David says. Now this is approximately 1000 years BC where this story is being had. You have these 12 objects. These 12 objects, these 12 groups of people, 12 very specific terms here used. Well, this is beginning to sound familiar. It's begin, beginning to sound something like a story that we we read about 1030 years later by John the Beloved, in chapters 18 and 19 of his writing, where Christ is put on trial by the Jews and handed over to the representative of the king of Caesar, who is the de facto king of Israel through Herod, and is tried by that very court. He's judged not guilty by the very representative of Caesar. He's given a royal robe, which is eventually torn in two after he's crucified. He's given a jar a drink from a jar when he's about to die. And finally, when he's already dead, the soldier plunges the spear into his very side and outflow blood to the ground and water. Yep, that's he, the Lord's anointed, which another word for the Lord's anointed is the, the Messiah. It says that cursed is he who's hung on a tree. And it said that he's the offering by which God sets right the justice that had been so long delayed. These these 12 very terms that are used in Samuel a thousand years later are used in actual history on the most important man who's ever lived. We find this convergence at hand. The convergence of fractal nature in nature. This fractality, this fractalness, in reality, at play. Well, that's really interesting that a passage from a thousand years later parallels this. And what it does is it sets David up as a pre-Messianic figure, 
someone that eludes the identification with the Messiah, but also ends up being a forefather of the very Messiah. He is, the Messiah, after all, comes from the very line of David, David whose throne will have no end, that generation to generation his throne shall stand forever and ever. We see these sorts of of themes indwelt in the Jewish writings, and so in the book of John the Beloved, we see this actually strike down into history like lightning. The theoretical becomes the physical. The the thing that manifested a thousand years later is something that was also an archetype of something that was higher, that was better, and they eventually converge. And so this is really an interesting point. I think that when we look at the figurative nature of the Jewish writings, we find something deeper and truer and more right than we could ever have imagined. It said that the sign above his head was written, Hail, King of the Jews. And that, that sign was ordered there by the representative of the Caesar, the, the king of the king of Israel. Herod the king, maybe, at that time. But either way, the, the king of Israel and the king of the Jews are the same person, people. So just like you had the two kings of Israel speaking a thousand years earlier in David and Saul, now you have the two kings of Israel, the king of the Jews and the actual king of Israel, in dialogue. Both the former king, who's still in power, but his time is limited, and the future king who will ascend the throne in a way that no one would have ever guessed. He ascends the throne through death, through sacrifice, through offering, in order to propitiate sin and draw some up into eternity himself. And this is this is the this is the beauty of, of studying the scriptures. Especially the, the Jewish scriptures. There's there's beauty there. There's there's passion there, there's reality there. And I think that we we can find the moral law, the moral reasoning behind the way that David felt about these things. When we look at some of his his introspective writings later on in the Psalms, these these songs of worship and praise. I think Psalms eighteen, I believe it is, verses twenty five and twenty six, where he says to God, he says that to the merciful the Lord looks merciful. To the blameless, he looks blameless. To those who are purified, he looks pure. But to the crooked, but to the crooked man, God is torturous. He says this, he says, For you save a humble people. He saves the humble. The king whose throne is established forever, David, says that God only saves the humble. That the highest person, the most powerful person in that part of the world, says that you must become a humble person if you receive the true power that comes from God. And so this is where we get back to this idea of the the constrained power, the idea of the self-constrained authority as the highest form of power. That it always gets back to the idea of self-sacrifice. It always gets back to the idea of the inversion of what you would have expected. That the king that comes, comes not riding on a white stallion, but comes riding on the fowl, the colt of a donkey, has never been ridden before. They didn't have any ability to be able to be maneuvered at all. A very unheightening type of experience. A very diminutive, diminutive experience. A very embarrassing experience, probably. And so we find this at play in reality itself that when you're merciful to others, reality is merciful to you. When you're blameless, truly blameless, reality will be blameless to you. Reality will be pure in your sight. But to the man... To the woman, to the child who is crooked, reality will become nothing but torture. You see, 
the very vision through which you see reality, reality will prove itself every time. It says that you save a humble people. This is what David says. He says you save a humble people. The irony of the king saying that only the humble are saved is something worth considering. That the king, the most powerful figure in all the land, promotes humility as the primary attribute of those who would find salvation. Salvation not only in the eternal, probably, but also salvation in their lives. The idea of being free from addiction, free from the things that enslave you, free from fear, free from sin, free from even the, the apprehension, the arrestment that death attends to before it comes. So here we find the highest, the best, the most noble of the powers, the self-constrained, 